just want to start off by saying how nice it is to be back up here. If uh, you've been coming for the last couple months, my name's Rob. Um, I was told a long time ago before we got into uh, planning a church that if you're a pastor and you start to feel tired of preaching, don't. Stop preaching. Uh, just take a break. And so what was I was told to do was to take breaks regularly so that you always are looking forward to it. And so I think this is only the second time I've preached in the last six or seven weeks. So I'm very thankful for everybody that's uh, filled in for me. And I have been very much looking forward to being back here to share God's word with you uh, this evening. So I believe I have trimmed my message down to about two hours since I haven't been able to do it in a couple weeks. So. <laughs> Which, as Sal is demonstrating, that's an improvement. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, and as we've been going through the book of Matthew, we've called the entire uh, series through the book of Matthew, Your Kingdom Come. As we continue to go through Matthew, as we've already been talking about what is the kingdom of God, and what is God's kingdom, and, and what does that look like, and we're starting to move towards a point in Matthew where Jesus is going to start telling parables that start off with, the kingdom of heaven is like. And so that's the big overall picture. Over the last couple months, we've been in uh, chapters 8 and 9, specifically looking at the miracles of Jesus. But there's been three points that we've been trying to give as an overview of the entire book of Matthew. Really, it's an entire overview of the Word of God. But one of the things we want you to do is, as you are reading God's Word on your own, that you would be able to see how these three points tie into really everything you're going to read in the Bible. And so hopefully uh, these are starting to become familiar with you. Number one, we want you to see the big picture as number one, Jesus is Lord. You can say amen there, that's fine. Amen. We'll try it again. Jesus is Lord. Amen. Number two, I'm going to switch up the slides here, John. I'm sorry, I wrote them down wrong. Number two, God's kingdom is an upside down kingdom. Amen. Now that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that God's kingdom is literally upside down. That means as God, who is the perfect creator and Lord of all, his kingdom is correct. We, in our human minds, we tend to see it as upside down because it goes against everything that we have been taught from a young age. And then number three, Jesus is the answer. Okay, Jesus is the answer. So write these down because you're going to be seeing them again, I promise you. The other thing that we want to look at, and we've mentioned it a couple times, is the book of Matthew was not written chronologically. As we look at the four Gospels that start off the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all very similar. A couple years ago, we went through the book of John. You can look those up on the podcast. We spent about two years, I think, in the book of John. Um, the book of John was written by John really after just about everybody had died, and it was really like his memoirs. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written pretty shortly after uh, Jesus had returned to heaven. And Matthew, when we first started off, we said Matthew writes it from a Jewish perspective as he was, and they believe it was probably the first one that was written. The book of Matthew played a major role as they started the early church. Um, when we see that happening through 
the disciples. I kid around telling people it was a, uh, a manual for church planting, and then somebody said, I told somebody about the manual for church planting, and they said that's not, I was like, okay, so that was just my take on it. That's not an actual, like, manual you hand somebody. Um, but this is what was very informative. And so when we look at the book of Matthew, we have to see that unlike Mark and Luke, it was not written chronologically. These events didn't necessarily happen one after the other, as you might see in Luke and Mark. And so we have to ask, because Matthew does not write things on accident. Uh, as you examine the book of Matthew, they are written very much on purpose and for a very specific point. Um, the book of Matthew can really be broken down as four different discourses. And the intro, then we did the Sermon on the Mount, and now this is how the Sermon on the Mount plays out, how Jesus is living out what the kingdom of heaven looks like in chapters 8 and 9, and eventually when we get into chapter 10, we will be in the second discourse of the book of Matthew. Whew, there's a bunch of information for you. So why is Jesus doing these miracles? Why is Matthew pointing out these specific miracles that we are seeing. So I want to go back to Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah in the Old Testament is this prophet, and he is telling of the things that is to come. And really, I believe in the shortest chapter in Isaiah, Matthew is telling about the Messiah. He is telling what the Messiah will do, and he is telling of what the kingdom of heaven will look like. And he writes, starting in Isaiah, and I'm going to read the entire chapter 35. He writes, and this is again prophecy of the coming Messiah. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given in it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthens the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to you. Then the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclear will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Isaiah is telling about this, this kingdom that is coming. He is talking about this Savior that will come. And I want to go back to verse 5. He says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. And we're going to meet some of these people tonight in Matthew chapter 9. So what Matthew is trying to portray to us as we've been going through Matthew chapter 9 is we see all of these things happening that only the Messiah, only the promised Savior could bring forth in this land. This land that at this time is filled with oppression. 
They are oppressed by their religious leaders. They are oppressed by the Romans. That seems completely hopeless. They keep seeing and waiting for this hope. False messiahs keep rising up. They keep thinking that the Romans are the problem. If only we could get rid of the Romans, we will be free and everything will be just fine. Jesus comes and Jesus is continually telling them, nope, the Romans is not your biggest problem. Sin and death is. And in this portion, he is demonstrating that he is Lord of all as he continues to heal. So all that is just intro. Turn to Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 27, will be tonight's passage. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 27. It says, As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him. And he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. So I want to look at a couple things from this passage before we jump into the main points tonight. And I really hope you're taking notes. If you didn't, uh, take a pen or a pencil, or I guess people use electronic devices to do this now. So go ahead and do that. Uh, but a couple points I want to make out first before we really jump in. Number one, we see almost a, a two separate stories uh, here between the blind men and the demon-possessed mute men. So let's first look at the blind men and what we can learn from them in this passage. Number one. The thing that should stand out right away is that the blind men recognize Jesus as Messiah. That term they call out, Son of David. That is a term that would only be in the lineage or genealogy of King David, that they're recognizing that the Messiah would be the rightful King of Israel, that he should be the one that would be coming in that same bloodline. So to call out son of David is a very strong reference, especially when your land is being ruled by another ruler. They say son of David, or, or almost a, a hidden terminology for you are the Messiah. Secondly, their faith, their faith was shown in them going to Jesus. Uh, We say this repeatedly here, faith leads to action. Faith always leads to action. I was reading something recently, and I honestly can't remember where, but the author said, faith fuels feeling. Faith fuels feeling. Where we have uh, put our faith will be demonstrated by how we feel, and our feelings or our emotions will always lead to some form of action. And so if you're wondering what you truly have faith in, what you truly have put your hope in, we just examine our emotions, and that will be very telling. Our faith fuels our emotion. The third thing that we see with these blind men is that when you experience Jesus' healing touch, you can't stay quiet about it. It's something that you remember. It's something that sticks with you. 
A couple weeks ago, I preached on the calling of Matthew, and I said, if you were born without a limb, and somebody came up to you and touched you, and the limb grew back and was fully functioning, you would always talk about it. You would always be telling somebody about it, even if it didn't make sense in the conversation whatsoever. And the same is true here with these blind men. Jesus warns them sternly, don't go tell anybody about this. Now, the reasoning for that is believed because there was always somebody trying to rise up an army to fight the Romans. Uh, Jesus knew that there was an appointed time for him to be killed by the Romans, and so he was always saying, hey, let's not make a big fuss about this. Let's try to keep things quiet, stay quiet about this. He doesn't want the Romans thinking he's leading an uprising because his uprising that he's leading is against Satan, not against the Romans. But when you're blind and you can see again, you tell people. When you can have this incredible healing that has taken place in your life, you don't walk through town and somebody's like, hey, didn't you used to not be able to walk? Oh, yeah. yeah no, you bring it up. That's right. I used to not be able to walk. <laughs> well, what happened? Poof. I was over two weeks ago. I can't remember what I ate for breakfast. I can't remember what happened. All of a sudden, I just started walking. Really? Yeah, I mean, there was a guy involved. But I can't remember his name or what he looked like. How much more so, as we talked about with Matthew, should we remember being saved by a perfect Savior? How much more should we remember that sin and death was defeated, and now we can live for eternity with him? You remember it. So that's the blind man. That's a quick overview of the blind man. The second person that we see, or the third person, because there's two blind men, is the demon-possessed mute man. Now, we see other people in the New Testament that are healed, and normally they are uh, deaf and unable to speak. Is that what it was? Deaf and mute. Uh, they were unable to talk. Uh, this is an instance where it's saying that this person is unable to talk because of a demon possession. It is very specific. Uh, sometimes you might hear people say, well, they just called everything a demon then, so when Jesus healed them from demon possession, it's not what we're thinking of. This is one of those cases where, no, when we see that someone was demon-possessed, they were demon-possessed. And this is a man who, it appears, the demon had taken over control of his tongue. Something else that stands out right away is the man was brought to Jesus. The blind men sought out Jesus, even in their blindness. This mute, demon-possessed man was brought to Jesus. We don't know who by or what brought him. Something brought him, and also his faith is never mentioned. He never calls out Messiah. He, he never, um, uh, Jesus never says, your faith has made you well. Uh, we don't know exactly what that means. I'm not trying to read too much into it, but there's a drastic difference between the blind man and this demon-possessed mute man. However, Jesus drives out the demon. The man speaks, and the crowd is amazed. And they say, we've never seen anything like this in Israel before. And then it finishes up the passage with the Pharisees, and we could uh, do a whole message on this, and we will in the future. We talk about the Pharisees. The Pharisees say, surely he's the prince of demons who drives out demons. And all I have to say with the Pharisees right now is, Haters going to hate. Haters going to hate. They see Jesus as a threat to their popularity, their profit. They see Jesus as something that they have to get rid of. And so they're willing to do whatever it takes to get people not to listen to them. Uh, and we will spend a lot more time on that in the future, I promise you. 
So three points for this evening, and we're going to spend the most amount of time in point number three. Point number one, and I hope you're taking notes, Jesus is Lord. I told you we'd see this again. Jesus is Lord. Please understand, Jesus has dominion over everything. Jesus is in control. Colossians chapter 1, verses 5, starting in verse 15, says, The Son, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. When we say Jesus is Lord, he is Lord over everything. The second part of Jesus is Lord is this. Jesus is Lord, and your belief system has no effect on this. Most of you know this about me. I really am a big fan of professional wrestling. And there was a wrestler 20 years ago. Most of you have probably never heard of him. But his name is Dwayne The Rock Johnson. <laughs> have you heard of him? Oh, apparently he's done other stuff since wrestling. But he had some great lines that he was known for, and one of them was he would, in these trash-talking matches, he would wait for his opponent to say something like, well, I think that I'm going to, and he would cut them off, and he'd always say, it doesn't matter what you think, and the crowd would go nuts. And that's how it is in this. All I can think of whenever I see this, or when I'm talking to somebody, and I don't do this, by the way, and you're talking to somebody, and they're like, well, I just don't believe in Jesus, and I, it doesn't matter what you think. <laughs> Jesus is Lord over everything, your belief system has zero effect on that, I assure you. I would encourage you, I implore you to follow Jesus and understand that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord and your belief system has no effect on that. And then the third part of Jesus is Lord, and I can't emphasize this enough, Jesus is faithful and loving and kind and gentle. Jesus is trustworthy. Sometimes we can view God or, or Jesus as like this dispenser of karma. Hey, you did something good, you get something good. Here's a boat. Hey, you did something, you did something bad, you're not getting that job. Sorry. That is not how God operates. That is not how Jesus operates. God loved you so much, he sent his only perfect Son, to die a horrific death for you. Jesus came to earth. He had the power not to. He came. He willingly left the throne room of heaven to come to earth to suffer for your sins and to die for your sins and to defeat death for you. Please, Jesus is faithful and loving. He is trustworthy. He is more than worthy of our praise. Jesus is Lord. Number two, ready? God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, at least in our view. God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. 
Please understand that Jesus, while he's here on earth, and the things that we're seeing him do while he is on earth, and the things that he's demonstrating for us to go do as well, Jesus is restoring all things to how they were intended to be at creation. When we see miracles being done in these chapters, understand that Jesus isn't somehow walking into this creation he doesn't know and doing these amazing things that have never been done before. What Jesus is doing when he is uh, doing these miracles is he is going in and he is restoring things to how he created them. He's saying, this is what I want. This is what I have the power of doing is redeeming and restoring and saving and returning things back to how I created them. Miracles are simply Jesus restoring his creation that was and still is corrupted by sin in a way that only he can do because he is the creator and Lord of all. Jesus' miracles are amazing. Jesus is doing them so you understand that I am over all things. A demon has no, a demon as when Cam preached, the demon said, oh, that's Jesus. Hey, can we just go into those pigs over there, please? Please permit us to go because even demons have to ask Jesus for permission. He is Lord of all. Going back to Isaiah, he will come and the lame will leap like deer. The deaf's ears will be unstopped. The mute will sing for joy. The blind will see. Second part of God's kingdom is upside down kingdom. Jesus is always inviting the least likely to build his kingdom. Jesus is always inviting, and we see him inviting everybody, including, uh, I believe, that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, two Pharisees who, who eventually come to trust Jesus and understand that he is the way. But I think he puts the invitation out there, and it is the hurting, the lonely, the lost, the suffering, the oppressed. Those are the people that respond the people who have learned to rely on themselves, the people who rely on a bank account, a credit card, a car, a job, whatever it is that they're relying, they don't feel like they need him as much. It's nice. It's, it's good for once a week or maybe two if you're lucky. It is the least likely that Jesus is constantly using to build his kingdom. I love the story that Cam preached a couple weeks ago, that these demon-possessed men who are tearing up everything, they put him in a graveyard, they put chains on him, they bust the chains. Everyone just says to stay away from him. They are of no earthly value. And Jesus not only heals them and sends the demons into pigs, but says, go tell people about me in the Decapolis. And they become these first missionaries being sent out to these ten cities to proclaim just how awesome God is. Jesus is always inviting the least likely to build his kingdom. If you are thinking, I'm just not good enough to be used by God, you could not be more correct. Nobody is good enough on their own merits to be used by God. But God in his graciousness gave us Jesus, and now we can be used to point people to him. Jesus is always inviting us to be part of his story. Jesus is always inviting us to be part of his story and radiate his glory to those around us. We like to think of ourselves as the center, the, the movie star of our lives. I'm the star. God and Jesus play these small parts, and, and hopefully you'll be able to see them, when in reality this is God's story, and we play a part, but our part is just to point people to him just to continually point people to what it is to know Jesus and have that relationship with our perfect creator. 
When Jesus is healing, he is also demonstrating what his kingdom looks like. He's saying, my kingdom is perfect. Because, and it's very hard to remember this when we are going through the the difficulties of life, the suffering that comes on us as we walk through life. But please understand, whatever suffering, whatever pain, physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever you are going through in life, even if you are to suffer your entire life with this affliction, is incredibly temporary in comparison to living in a perfect kingdom with a perfect Lord, perfect Savior, perfect King, perfect Creator, for all of eternity. It is extremely temporary what we experience here on earth, and it should always be pointing us to what that eternal kingdom and eternity spent with our God, our loving Father, should look like. And then point number three. Hopefully you've guessed it. You did it, John. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Now again, this is, uh, we've been saying this for weeks. We sing songs about it. We read scripture and we say it. It might even be something that we, we tell our kids. It might be the last thing we tell somebody when we're run out of other things to tell them. Well, Jesus is the answer. Please leave me alone. <laughs> but a very convicting verse that's been hitting me uh, since we preached on it a while ago is Luke 6:46. And Jesus looks at the people and he says, "Why do you say, Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? Why do you call out to me? Why do you call me your Lord, but when I tell you to do something, you never do it?" Think about that if if you're a boss. If you are leading people at work, and there's this one employee who literally does the opposite of what you've asked them to do every time you ask them to do it. They are just the worst. <laughs> and then they bring somebody to you and they're like, you got to meet my boss. He's the best boss I've ever had. And you're like, why are you calling me boss if you never do what I ask you to do? And so it is with the Lord. The Lord says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? So, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this evening, is I want to look at three things. That if we truly believed that Jesus is the answer, these are three things that I think would immediately start to change in our life. And maybe you do these, uh, uh, but I, I just want to assume, let's say, that all of us struggle with doing these three things. All right? The first thing that I think would change in our life if we truly believed with our core being, that Jesus is the answer, is number one, we would hunger and thirst for righteousness. We would hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, when we were going through the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 6, Jesus says, blessed are those, and that word blessed, I want to stop for a second, that word blessed means when we are partakers in the very character of God. In other words, when we are doing this, we are now being a partaker in a characteristic of Jesus. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they 
will be filled. For they will be satisfied. For they will understand what it is to have true satisfaction, eternal satisfaction, not temporary. Imagine what it looks like, that righteousness of God chasing after that. And it's hard for us to understand. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't miss a ton of meals. I am not a person to describe to you what starvation is or what I went through when I was feeling that way. I don't even know a time where I was thirsty and couldn't get to water in a very short amount of time, even when I've traveled to other countries. So what is it to actual, in this world where people are starving to death and famines would wipe out nations, what does it look like to hunger and thirst for righteousness? What does it look like to chase after Jesus in the way that we would if we were dying from thirst or malnutrition? So here's some questions to ask yourself. One, where do you... Don't answer out loud. This is for your community groups. Where do you go to be filled? Where do you go to find that satisfaction? Where do you go uh, when you, something wrong has happened? What is that security blanket that you run to that you're hoping will help you get through this? Something went wrong. Feelings were hurt. I didn't like this. And so I'm going to go do this because, hey, I deserve it. Because this will make me feel better. Maybe it's temporary, but it will make me feel better. And so that's what I need. Because where you go to find that temporary happiness, that temporary satisfaction, that temporary fulfillment, that is telling of what you truly have faith in. What you have truly placed your faith and your hope, what has become the desire of your heart, all of those things are showing. Why? Because faith fuels feelings. What we are feeling and how we perceive things are telling of what we have truly put our faith in. And where we have truly put our faith and our hope in will play out every day in our lives. It plays out more so when we are going through hard times. I always go to Galatians chapter 5. You can read it on your own, but there is this split of if you are walking in the flesh, these are the things that you will follow after. These are the things that you will want to do. These are the thoughts that you will want to have. If you're walking in the Spirit in Galatians 5, then this is how you will be acting. These are the thoughts that you will have, and these are the actions that will take place. And so maybe you need somebody close to you to tell you, hey, you're acting like this, and you go, oh, I'm operating in the flesh. I need to repent. I need to go back. And these are the things that I need to be putting on. Point number two under Jesus is the answer. If we honestly believe that Jesus is the answer, number two, it would change our perspective on suffering. It would change our perspective on suffering. And, and however you want to explain suffering, stress, anxiety, uh, hurts, ailments, pain, of all natures, emotional, spiritual, physical, any of those things that fall into that category that we understand as suffering. Because I'm, I'm sure that we can view problems, a lot of times we view these different ailments or sufferings or problems, if you will, and we're like, oh, if I could just stop doing this, 
then I could properly worship God. Oh, if just this would stop happening, if just these thoughts would stop coming back to me, then I could truly worship God. If I just wasn't in as much pain in this area, or if fill in the blank, then I could properly worship God. And I think it starts with a faulty reasoning. We honestly believe that we are so awesome that nothing bad should ever be done to us. And when something bad is done to us, it's usually somebody else's fault. Because, again, I'm pretty awesome. I'm not as bad as that guy. And we don't like to admit that, but I think if we were all being honest, that's how, where we start from, and so we view any form of suffering as, I don't deserve this. I'm too good for this. This was somebody else's fault. But understand that the very thing we may be fighting against, that God has allowed in your life, whether you did it or it was done to you, this might be the same thing that God is allowing to happen in your life as a reminder to rely on him and him alone, to remind you to run to him repeatedly. Because again, going back to God's kingdom, uh, God didn't intend for suffering and disease and pain to exist in the world that he created. Suffering exists because of Adam's sin. And we'll read another uh, in the New Testament that because of Adam's sin, sin entered the world. And now, because of that curse in Genesis 3, sin continues to cause problems repeatedly for every single human being that has lived since Adam. But that is the wonderful fulfillment of that promise of Jesus, that he is the new man, that he is the perfect man, and that that sin that existed that brought disease and famine and death and suffering into the world, that was not what God's intention was, but because of God being a loving and merciful and gracious God, he sent his son to be the new man, the perfect man, that would pay the ultimate price for your and my sin. So now there is a problem, or there is a solution to the sin problem and the death problem. That's how much God loves you. And he is restoring all things to himself. We see repeatedly that because of Jesus, we have healing from our suffering. Jesus is demonstrating again that he alone can be trusted. That he is more than trustworthy. Jesus is demonstrating that he came to restore all things to himself. So now what do we do knowing that? What is our response to that? Because if you're like me, and again I'm going to go ahead and assume because I imagine we're all humans, that you struggle daily with all these different things that happen in your life. That you struggle daily remembering things that you've done in the past, and that past may have only been an hour ago. And Satan loves to try to get you to see yourself as, you're not the problem, bud. All these other people are. And so I'm going to walk you through, because we continue to repeat, you must preach the gospel to yourself daily. I try to start every day by understanding who I am and who God is and how I desperately need him every day. So a little thing about me, those closest to me, I think you will back me up on this. I have a pretty good memory. I can remember a lot of stuff. I don't know why. 
And it sounds like that's a good thing. I assure you, it has its negative qualities about it. In 1 Corinthians 13, when it's talking about love, it says, love does not keep a record of wrongs. I work on this daily because I can remember every wrong thing somebody has done to me. And if I forgot, but I see them again or their names mentioned again, I can start giving you a list. It pops right back. And so the problem that this does is when left alone, I start to think of all the people that I'm angry at, all the people that have wronged me and how they've wronged me. And so it's a constant battle for me to do this. And so what I've done is I have tried to have to train my brain to, as we've been talking about, run to Jesus, run to the gospel, run to preaching the gospel over to myself repeatedly. So that when I start to allow that bitterness to start coming into my life, when I'm remembering how somebody wronged me, I can go and I remember a friend saying to me, and now multiple people have said to me, bitterness is the poison you drink expecting somebody else to die. I think by myself being mad at them, that that's going to really show them. And they might not even know I'm mad at them. Chances are they forgot about it. In Proverbs, it tells us that bitterness rots the bones. That becomes so angry and bitter that I'm hurting myself because I am unwilling to allow Jesus to handle it. Uh, or when I complain about a situation in life, I remember uh, I could make people laugh by just really harping on something, complaining about it over and over and over again. So that's what I would go to when I needed to make people laugh, which I actually didn't need to, I just wanted to. And I heard a pastor say, when we complain about a situation in life, we attack the very character of God. God has allowed us to go through something in life to point us back to him, but you want all the attention for yourself. Well, that really hurt. <laughs> but now I have to go back and repent and realize that I'm attacking the very character of God when I do this. Or again, I can think that I don't deserve this because I'm awesome. And I have to go back to remembering, oh no, what I deserve is way worse. What I deserve by just the smallest sin, if you will, is eternally being separated from the glory of God in every way in the worst type of torture you could ever imagine for eternity. That's what I deserve. So now, having known God and that promise of spending eternity with Him in a perfect kingdom, with a perfect rule, and a perfect king, and a perfect savior, that is way more than I could ever deserve. So I become very thankful for what God, through his Son, has done for me. So Jesus is the answer. If we really believe that, we would hunger and thirst for righteousness. It would change our perspective on suffering. And number three, we would run to Jesus. We would run to Jesus. I want to take a minute and make a comparison with these two blind men that we see. And I'm going to compare them with a story back in Genesis on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm trying to look around about the ears that are involved in here and how much detail I go into about Sodom and Gomorrah. Just know Sodom and Gomorrah were terrible. They were terrible. <laughs> Sorry. Parker just shut Jackson's ears back in the back. Of um, really threw me off. Uh, but worth it. In the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, two angels, they go to Lot to let them know that they're going to destroy the city. And the men of the city saw these two men and are overcome with lust. And the men of the city are overcome with lust and they say, we must have these men. 
And they go and they beg them, and Lot says, no, 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 take my daughters instead. Don't do anything to these men, knowing that they're angels. And they say, no, we must have these men. And so the angels blind the men. But they are so overcome with their lustful cravings that blindness doesn't even throw them off. Compare that with the two blind men in this passage, who they are blind, but their faith is in Jesus. They know that he's the Messiah, so they follow after him. Imagine, and please understand that this ancient Israel was not set up nicely for people with any kind of a disability, let alone being blind. We don't know how far they came, we don't know how far they traveled, but their faith, which faith fuels feelings, their faith said that this was the Messiah who could redeem their sight, who could restore their sight, and so there wasn't any hindrance that was going to get in their way of finding the Messiah, just like the men of Sodom and Gomorrah who were blinded and it didn't sway them from thinking that they were going to find the satisfaction that they had been searching for in following after their love. And so the tough part that we have to reconcile with ourselves is, which one are we? Because what we run to when we are trying to find satisfaction is telling of what our faith is truly in. Because whatever our faith is in, there is not going to be any boundary we're not willing to cross. If our faith is planted in some form of idol worship, which is anything that can get in the way between you and your relationship with God, we will hurt our family, we will hurt our children, we will hurt our spouse, we will hurt those closest to us. Again, I have worked majority of my adult life in addictions. I have seen what people are willing to sacrifice to follow after something that they truly believe will bring them happiness. And we do the exact same thing. So when we say that we truly believe that Jesus is the answer, does our faith put into actions back that up? How big is the obstacle that keeps you from Jesus? Yeah, it was a busy day. That wasn't much. What is keeping you from running to Jesus? I want to take, go back to this story of these blind men and the mute man. And I want you to ask yourself, how do you put yourself, or where do you see yourself in this, in this story, in this miracle? The blind men, again, they believed that Jesus is the answer. And so they went to him. There was no obstacle that could get in their way. They ran to Jesus. The deaf mute man, or the, the mute demon-possessed man, says he was brought to Jesus. And I don't know uh, the, the story there. I think he was more than likely, and I think it's very obvious. This isn't scriptural, this is just my take. The person that was being possessed probably wanted to go to Jesus. The demon didn't want anything to do with Jesus. So there was this inner battle happening between satanic forces trying to keep him from going to Jesus and possibly his desire to see Jesus. But what we do know is that he was brought to Jesus. We don't know who by, 
It was possibly people who understood that this was a major problem and that there was an answer to it and we are going to do whatever it takes to make sure that this person who is battling an inner demon can get in front of Jesus because Jesus is the answer. So what camp do you find yourself in? Are you finding yourself running to Jesus all the time? Preaching the gospel to yourself daily? Understanding that only He can truly satisfy? Do you find yourself as that inner battle? You know what's right to do, but something just isn't allowing you to do it. You are concerned about what you look like. You are concerned about what will other people think. You are concerned that what if this one thing that I for so many years have thought would bring me happiness, what if I give that up and I'm not happy? Whatever that inner battle is, we have to ask ourselves and examine ourselves and surround ourselves with people just like this demon-possessed mute man apparently was surrounded by people who said, this man needs to be brought to Jesus because he is the only answer. So who are you surrounding yourself with? Do you have friends? Do you have a community around you that knows when you're battling those things and knows when you need to be pointed to Jesus. Knows when they need to sometimes put you on their shoulders and run to Jesus. Because remember, those who have been healed, those who have experienced that salvation touch of Jesus, those who have understood what it is to know Jesus, they can't shut up about it. They find ways to interject it into every conversation. They know exactly what happened. They were lost. They were found. They were sick. They were healed. They were blind, and now I see. And they can't stop talking about it. Those who have been filled know where those suffering need to go. Remember, Jesus was the doctor. He said, I have come to seek the sick. How do we interact with those that need Jesus? As those who have been healed, if you have made Jesus the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, are you bringing other people to Jesus? Are you pointing to him and saying, he's the answer? I always go back to the story of the blind man that Jesus heals. And his parents are quite upset about it because he's telling everybody that Jesus healed him. And they're threatened with getting kicked out of the synagogue. So the Jewish leader like, hey, don't say anything. And the Jewish leaders are like, hey, what happened? He's like, well, I was blind, and now I see, and Jesus did it. And they're like, well, how'd he do it? All I know, literally, my entire theology on this is, I was blind, and now I see, and Jesus did it. If you have experienced the healing touch of Jesus, if you have experienced salvation, that is a great starting point to start telling other people about it. I was lost, I was hopeless, and now I have hope and I have forgiveness and I have love and I have joy, and all I can do is tell you that it was only Jesus, that only Jesus can cause this. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much that you are Lord, that you have a kingdom that you are building here on earth and that you have called us the least likely to be ambassadors of your kingdom. 
Lord, our prayer is that if there is anyone here this evening who has never called out to you, that hasn't experienced you as the forgiver of their sins and leader of their life, that tonight they would call out to you and ask for the forgiveness that only you can provide. Lord, I pray for those that are here that do know you. Lord, my prayer is that we would run to you, that we would run to you and that we would take others with us That when we stop and we meditate on your word, that we would be able to understand that you are trustworthy. That if we are calling out, Lord, Lord, we should also do what you tell us to do. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.